I'm looking forward to a little more time in the Word now with you. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Please open your Bibles. The title of today's sermon is, Many Members But One Body. And undoubtedly, many of you have read this text and studied this text. This is one of those texts, again, that we cannot remind ourselves often of enough. And if you haven't noticed, junior church is dismissed. <laughs> it's a lot to keep track of. <laughs> God bless you, children. This is one of those chapters that we do well to come back to often. You know, the theme of this book is the unity of the church. And in this chapter, Paul addresses our unity in service. This is a wonderful thing. This is one of the things that binds us together, one of the things that God uses to accomplish the work of the ministry. It's one of the ways that we show our care for one another. It's one of the ways we show our love to the world when everyone is doing their part. I have very much forward this week, looked forward to reading this chapter and studying it together with you. Let's, let's begin in verse 1. Paul says to the Corinthian church, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body, the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable 
On these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there be, may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to what your Spirit will reveal to us in these few minutes that we have in your wonderful Word. We thank you, Lord, that the way you have structured life and families and marriages and the church is a perfect order. You have designed all things well. And as we looked to look to the matter of the church and are all belonging together as one body, we pray that you would so move in our hearts to not only better understand your truth, but Lord, inspire, motivate, empower us to follow through on living in such a way that people can say, there goes a person who is doing their part. There is a church family who is functioning as one unit, as one team, as one body. We pray this, Lord, not just for our own benefit, not just for the common good, but Lord, we pray this that people will see and know that you are God, that your ways and your thoughts are higher and better than all of ours. Thank you for your word. Guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are many, many differing views of the gifts of the Spirit, as you know. These gifts that God gives to believers. And oftentimes, these differing views are held quite strongly. And in a sense, rightly so. The power of God is not something to be mistaken about. It is not something we want to get wrong. Now today, we're not going to go deep into the specific gifts and their functions because that's not where Paul goes with this text. We'll take a deeper look at that next week when, we, when Paul gets into that level of detail in chapter 14. The focus of this chapter is not so much on the individual gifts, but rather on the unity and the necessity of all the giftings in the church. As I study this chapter these past days and, and weeks, I found myself once again just marveling at the wisdom of God, particularly as it relates to being a healthy church. There isn't a one of us here who doesn't long to be a part of a healthy church, a happy church, a loving church, a caring church. Every one of us wants to be a part 
of a place in which we feel like we are together. You know as well as I do, our society is fracturing at an increasing rate. People are more individual than we have ever seen in our lifetimes. And yet God uses the instrument of the church to correct this, to give us guidance. And one of the severe issues that Paul had to deal with in the church, as we have seen, is the issue of division. The Corinthian church was hurting because they could not agree and get along on so many points of the church and of life in the church. Life as believers, life as married couples, life as families. You don't even need to be a Christian to know that there is no organization, there is no group of people who can survive, let alone thrive, unless they are united. And once a group gets to the point that they're at least willing to be united, their journey has just begun. Now they must determine that which they will unite upon. As we've seen throughout this book, Paul has laid out truth after truth and action after action for the church to unite to. This is not a matter of personal opinion. This is a matter of God's teaching us what exactly we will become one over. And today's topic of unity in service has the potential to unite us and bring us even tighter together. Is that not what every one of us would like to see in our church family? As we read through, read through the chapter just a minute ago, we could see that there were several issues at play in the church regarding people's giftings and their service in the church. There were people who felt more important than others. There were people who felt less important than others in the church. There were people who were neglecting their spiritual gifts, and there were people who were abusing their gifts. These problems, as Paul has wisely been teaching us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these problems come from heart attitude problems. Attitudes that he has been laying out for 11 chapters now. Attitudes of pride, selfishness, and control. Discontent, envy, and bitterness. Discouragement, loneliness, and unworthiness, to name a few. Let's examine how Paul addresses all of these things. Verse 1. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. That is, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant on this matter. This is, do you realize, this is one of the most encouraging scriptures to 21st century believers. This is one of the most encouraging scriptures in this whole book. We are not the only ones who do not fully understand the spiritual gifts. Minds have been boggled since day one on this topic in the church, at least since year four in the Corinthian church. And if you're perplexed by the spiritual gifts, you are not alone. Thankfully, the scriptures are going to give great clarification today. Verse two, Paul says, you know that when you were pagans, 
You were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. That's Paul saying, before we kick off this discussion, everybody here needs to remember from whence they were saved. We were all heathens. We were all spiritually ignorant. None of us had any idea where we were going as we were being led. We all had our own false gods in our lives. And regardless of how we got to that point of spiritual ignorance, the point is, that's where we all got to. That's what Paul is saying in verse 2 here. And when we stop and think about it, that is a great place to begin any Bible study, a great place to begin any Sunday school class or even our daily personal devotions. We need to remember how great a salvation we have been given, and we would greatly err in chapter 12 if we were to approach this topic like any of the others without a remembrance of how great and amazing our salvation is. It is all by God's grace. It is not by any strength or wisdom of our own. That position of humility is one that God clearly uses to enable Christians to understand the wisdom of God. We studied that back early in, the, in this book. Paul is reminding us of these truths as we approach this difficult subject. There are many opinions on the spiritual gifts. You can only imagine when the spiritual gifts were in full force in the early church how easy it would have been for them also to have had differing opinions about who has what gifts, which ones are more valuable, how and when they should be used. There was much conflict, obviously, in the church. And that is because everyone has what? Their own opinion. To be sure, even in the Corinth in the early church days, there were incorrect opinions of the spiritual gifts. And, and just to make sure we're all on the same page, when we refer to spiritual gifts, we are not talking about our natural skills, the things we happen to be good at, the things we enjoy. We are talking in this chapter about supernatural skills, and Paul has named a, a number of them. The gift of knowledge, the gift of prophecy, of healing, of tongues, of interpretation, of administrations, etc. These are strengths that are delivered by the Holy Spirit directly to an individual the moment that they are baptized into oneness with Christ. And we're not talking about water baptism here. We're talking about Holy Spirit baptism, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Paul talked about back in chapter 6, when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin, when they do this, when they call upon the name of the Lord, Romans chapter 10, they are then saved from the wrath of God. They are forgiven of their sins, and they are granted the promise, the guarantee of eternal life. And the Holy Spirit immediately comes and dwells within them. As Paul says in chapter 6, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple is no longer a building made with bricks and stones by wood, by the hand of men. Instead, we are the temple. This is one of the magnificent changes of the new covenant. 
What an incredible spiritual reality that God would no longer dwell in a tabernacle or in a temple. He would choose to dwell in us. And when He indwells in us, He also equips us with a spiritual ability to serve Him and to serve others. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We call this our spiritual gifting, our unique spiritual gifting. And that's the topic that Paul is addressing in chapter 12 here. He is about to give us a seminary-level lecture on the spiritual gifts. I encourage you to take out pen and paper so that you can write out this list and take it home and consider for yourselves these 13 definitions and attributes of spiritual gifts and consider how these impact and guide and shape and direct the way we are supposed to live and function in the church. By the time you outline Paul's incredible teaching here on the gifts, you will probably know more detail on the spiritual gifts than the majority, the vast majority of Christians that you know. There are 13 attributes that Paul gives us of spiritual gifts that lend great clarity to this matter. Point number one was that there is a common misunderstanding. Point one, common misunderstanding. We saw this in verse 1 when Paul said, I do not want you to be unaware. The spiritual gifts can easily be misunderstood when we approach them with our own religious opinions and are based on our own religious backgrounds apart from what the Scripture says. So the first cautionary factor of the spiritual gifts is common misunderstanding. And verse 3 gives us our second point. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. Point number two, the supreme message. Jesus is Lord. And Paul talks about the message that people will be giving. He has just given us two fundamental truths regarding all preaching and teaching as it relates to Christ. If someone claims to be a Christian, especially and in any way belittles or defames or changes the nature and person of Jesus Christ, they are speaking apart from the authority of the Spirit of God, meaning, meaning they are speaking of the devil. And if anyone says Jesus is Lord, they could have only known that. They could only proclaim that by the power that is in them, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the supreme message that the Holy Spirit communicates to and through believers. In John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the Helper comes, that is the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. That is one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit, surely the supreme role. No person can come to this level of spiritual understanding and discernment apart from the Holy Spirit communicating it to them. Man in his foolishness, dead in his trespasses, 
and unable to even seek God, Romans chapter 3, cannot ascertain that Jesus is Lord. This has tremendous impact and bearing on how we continue to approach God. This has tremendous impact on how we evangelize. We must recognize that the battle of the soul does not rest in the battle of the mind because the mind cannot discern on its own who Jesus is. This is a spiritual warfare. Salvation is a work of God. And it is important that we recognize the supreme message that the Holy Spirit gives us and even allows us to communicate. And that is that Jesus is Lord. That is evangelism. This is a divine truth and a divine relationship that can only be divinely revealed. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Point three, the singular source. Regardless of the varieties, regardless of the differences between gifts and ministries and effects, we need to understand something very important. And Paul is stating it three times from three different angles to make one paramount truth. And that is the truth that there is only one Spirit, one God, who is the driving force behind all of the work of the Holy Spirit. Everything that you and I do in the power of the Holy Spirit is driven by one person, one source. That means that you and I are not the source of equipping people with this, the gifts of the Spirit. We exhort, we encourage, we sharpen, but we all only have one source of our spiritual gifting, and that is the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Point number four, the grand purpose. Why are there spiritual gifts? Paul has just given us the overarching purpose for these gifts. And what is it? The common good. The godly benefit for everyone. The spiritual edification for the whole, as we've studied in recent weeks. And what is the common good? That all would be able to say, Jesus is Lord. There is a common purpose, a grand purpose in the spiritual gifts. Verse 8, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. The focus and purpose of verses 8 through 10 is not to get into a deep discussion on the individual gifts, but rather to point us to verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things. Point number five, the absolute energy. The ESV Bible says these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. 
So similar to point three, the reality is that you and I have no absolute power. We have absolutely no power to contribute to this operation. Have you thought about that? In the truest sense, our spiritual gifts are just that. They are gifts of the Spirit, not only given by the Spirit of God, but empowered by the Spirit of God. This would be similar to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Ours is not to grow the fruit. What would that be? The fruit of man. It's the Spirit's role to produce fruit. So what is our part? What did Paul say back in chapter 3? Some plant and some water, but God gives the increase. This is a distinguishing factor that we all must be aware of. In all spiritual reality, God is the one who does the work of the gift He has given us. The Holy Spirit is the absolute energy of all good that takes place in the church. We'll see where all of this is going in a minute. Verse 11 goes on to say, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Point six, custom fit. Custom fit. Each person receives the gift that is just right and necessary for them and the calling that God has given them in life. This speaks profoundly to the interest and attention that God has given every individual. We are not part of a cookie-cutter machine. We are not the product of an assembly line in some heavenly manufacturing plant. We are the handcrafted, individual work of God. Each one of us is given that level of attention by God Himself. He custom fits every one of us for the calling and the purposes that He has willed for our life. Paul gave an outstanding picture of our identity back in chapter 1. If we continue looking for it, we see all throughout these chapters that Paul is continuing to define our identity. He defines it through each of these chapters and verses. Here we see the individual attention that God chooses to place on each one of us. This is a tremendous affirmation of our individual worth in His eyes. Point number seven, last part of the phrase, just as He wills, communicates sovereign assignment. Point seven, a sovereign assignment. Spiritual gifting, that is the spiritual equipping, is the sole work of the Spirit, and it is also based on the sole will of the Spirit. We do not pick and choose our gifts, nor do we determine them for others. The angels do not determine them. Satan and the powers of darkness do not have any bearing on this matter. God distributes the gifts as He deems best. What is the obvious implication of this truth? We can have great confidence in the way God has made us. The skills the equipping that He gives us, particularly our spiritual abilities. These are abilities that we do not receive at random. They come with these two words stamped on them, God's will. That gives us tremendous confidence moving forward in life. It's why we must take careful consideration 
have a faith-based perspective on how God has equipped each one of us to serve Him. Discontent, neglect, and misuse of the spiritual abilities God has given us is not a personal issue. Ultimately, it is not even a disservice to the church. What is it? It's a God issue. As we have seen over and over throughout this book, our minds, our bodies, our resources, our life choices, our skills, they are inextricably tied to the person of God. Why? Because we are not we're our own. We have been bought with a price, and that price was the blood of Christ. That's why you and I should take such severe care of how we use the gifts that God has given us. He has sovereignly assigned them. We come to the conclusion that Paul did when he talked about being bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Again, our spiritual gifting is based on sovereign assignment. Verse 12, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Point eight, functional unity. Our part in the body of Christ has nothing to do with social status, nothing to do with ethnicity or even religious background. Anyone suffering from true discrimination would have great appreciation for this verse. In a world where the rich are at an advantage, it is not so in the kingdom of God. In a world where your skin color or nationality may wrongfully and unfairly disadvantage you, it is not so in the kingdom of God. We are one. No matter where we sit on the economic ladder, we are fully baptized into the body. No matter where we sit on the ethnic chart, we fully partake of the one Spirit of God. No matter what your religious history, if you are now a child of God, then you are fully a child of God. We are in this together. We need to recognize this of ourselves, and we need to recognize this of one another. And to visibly drive this point home, Paul now uses the analogy of the human body. Verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. Now, Paul has given us eight points of truth pertaining to spiritual gifts, somewhat more theological, doctrinal points, starting with the caution against common misunderstanding, followed by the supreme message, the singular source, the grand purpose, the absolute energy, the custom fit, the sovereign assignment, and functional unity. All of the seven first points drive us to this eighth point, of functional unity. This is where reality strikes. This is where we live out the truth of spiritual gifts. If we understand the first seven truths, this is what life will look like for us as believers. Functional unity. Now we've got to love this next section. In a church where division and disunity and individualism and pride wreaked havoc and hurt 
Paul uses the human body as an analogy to point out the stupidity and the absurdity of their selfish logic and behavior. And let me warn you, be careful how loud you laugh at this next section because not much has changed in 2,000 years. Verse 15, Paul's going to come at this from several angles. Verse 15, if the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. Just because you or I don't think we are important in the church family, that does not make us any less important. Just because we might think we're not needed, that does not make us any less needed. You and I are a part of the body whether we want to or not. We are needed in the body whether we want to be needed or not. This is non-optional. We are looking at point nine, mandatory service. Next, we learn why there aren't 180 David Christensen's walking around here. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? That's why there aren't 200 Patricias. If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. Again, notice that sovereign assignment. We know it's important when Scripture begins repeating itself. Verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? Point 10, essential individualism. Essential individualism. I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. You have to promise never to tell anyone. I take my sermons often, the sermon text, and I use it for family devotions earlier in the week. Yes, I, I practice on my family. Uh, not, not the whole sermon, the text. It's a family devotion. Helps me to get thinking about the text. And you're probably thinking, well, that explains a lot. He practices on a two-year-old. Yeah. It does help me to practice through the distraction of the two-year-old. But anyway, my family all chuckled when we got to verse 19. If they were all one member, where would the body be? I asked my kids, can you imagine if Leo was just one big eyeball? Or if Jacqueline was just a four-foot-long ear? Can you imagine her trying to inchworm her way around the house? No eye to see where she's going, no feet to help her move, etc. That's a hilarious and yet a ludicrous idea. But why is Paul telling the adult people in the church that it cannot be like this? because they tend to wish it was that way. They tend to think it can be that way. Have you ever looked down, and thought, looked down on yourself and thought, I wish God would have made me more like so-and-so? Marion, she wants to be like Peggy. I wish God would have made me more like so-and-so. Yes, but what if she's a nose? Do you know what the DBC church family would look like with two noses? You'd think that folks reading this letter would get the point by now, but Paul is going to continue driving this illustration home. He keeps driving it home because he is not taking any chances that people will not understand. Verse 20, but now there are many members but one body. Again, repetition emphasis, 
That's Paul getting to the point in where he's starting to highlight and bold and italicize, right? Verse 21, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Again, there's another angle. One person says, I wish I could be like so-and-so, while another person says, I don't even need so-and-so. They're both wrong. They're both tragically mistaken. Much hurt happens to the body when one member writes off another. God convict us of the foolish thought, I don't really need a church family. Or, I could do without that person in the church. Or, I wish that person would leave the church. You and I must be careful when we think I have no need of that person. That may be true of their shortcomings or their sins, but it is not true of the person. If they are a member of the body of Christ, then they are a member of our body. There is a unique necessity for them in the church. On the contrary, we as a church family would do well to operate from the basis of, I can't do it without you. We've got to work through this together. Sadly, there are too many people in the church who really don't care who comes and goes. If things get tough, they're just as content to move on to the next church. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time to leave a church, but I am repeating what Scripture says, and that is that we desperately need one another. We cannot do without each other. Verse 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our, our more presentable members have no need of it. Point 11, unique value. Unique value. And Don, if I could trouble you to let Junior Church Choir know that they, they can come get ready. Thank you. Our unique value. Stop and think about what Scripture is saying and teaching right here. The weaker are necessary. The less honorable deserve more abundant honor. The less presentable are much more presentable. He, what he's saying is the ugly are not so ugly. Nobody wants to look at a stomach, but have you tried living without one? <laughs> we don't value the value of our ability to balance until we have broken our big toe. We don't value our tragus, that's the bump on the front of the ear, until we recognize it helps us what? Hear sounds from behind. Those nail cuticles bother us until we realize they are blocking bacteria from entering our body through our hands which are touching surfaces all day long. What about the tongue's freedom? The little flap of skin that attaches the tongue to the bottom of your mouth. I trust you give God thanks for that every day. Without it, you would swallow your tongue. You would probably die in your sleep. It's not the prettiest part of our body. It's probably saving our life every day, though. Paul says there are people in the church just like that. Granted, don't take this illustration too far. Nobody wants to be the DBC big toe, but we get the point. 
The less honorable ministries deserve much more honor than we give them. Our less presentable members become much more presentable. That's the reality that they are more beautiful than we realize. Verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice, rejoice with it. Point 12, shared feelings. When one hurts, we all hurt. When one is happy, we're all happy. You notice in your salt starter that this is one of the questions for us to discuss in our small groups or in our own personal quiet time. What can we do better to put this truth into practice? When one suffers, we all suffer. When one is honored, we all rejoice. How can we have the same care for one another so that no one is neglected? This is one of the challenges in the church. It's one of the sadnesses in the church that some people go neglected, under the radar. We should be doing everything possible to have the same care. Why? Because we're all part of the same body. We're in this together. Verse 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Point 13, final point, Christ owned. Christ owned. Lest we lose sight of the bigger picture, Paul reminds us that we are just here, we are, we are not just here for each other. We're not just a body of individuals. We're not just a church. We are Christ's body. It's not that we belong to each other. Our calling, our ownership goes much higher and grander that we belong to Christ. We belong to God. That's why chapter 12 is so important. This whole matter, again, is a God issue. Verse 28, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And Paul just keeps hammering on this. Same point. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. That last phrase can be a difficult one to understand. Paul just finished telling us that all the gifts are necessary. He just finished exhorting us to not covet one another's gifts and to stop looking down on others or looking down on ourselves or looking too highly upon ourselves or even looking too highly on others. So for him to say, but earnestly desire the greater gifts does not fit in that casual understanding. The best explanation I've read is that Paul is answering all the questions that he just read. Everyone isn't the same thing, but they all desire the same thing. That's a mistake that is happening there. Perhaps they're desiring to be the showy or the popular gifts. Unfortunately, people earnestly desire the greater gifts. The solution is to adhere to all the truths Paul has just given us. Charles Spurgeon said this, I want every member of this church to be a worker. We do not want any drones. If there are any of you who want to eat and drink and do nothing, there are plenty of places elsewhere where you can do it. 
their empty pews about in abundance. Go and fill them, for we do not want you. Every Christian who is not a bee is a wasp. <clears throat> Those most quarrelsome persons are the most useless. And they who are the most happy and peaceable are generally those who are doing most for Christ. Now, as I mentioned last week, I quote, quote commentaries because I could never say these things, right? It's interesting, though. I point out that quote because I want us to recognize that it does not align with chapter 12. And yet it's a common thought in the church, especially among leadership. If you don't want to serve, we don't want you. Does that sound like chapter 12's teaching? That is hardly the case. Honestly, I have no desire to drive away those who are not serving. That would be like surgically removing a part of the body that God gave us Instead, our goal with one another should be to encourage and to exhort and to come alongside and to strengthen, recognize when there are those who are suffering and may not be serving as much, recognize those who are, there are those who are rejoicing, thank God for their service. The point in this is that we are in this together and we cannot do it without each other. My prayer is that as a result of studying the Word together today, each of us will recognize our Holy Spirit-based value and importance in the church, and that we would recognize that same wonderful value in everyone else. And of course, that in the end, we would all passionately serve together. I love the simplicity of God's Word. What we have just read is not complex. It is profound. The truths of it are unsearchable. There's always more to learn. But the heart of Scripture was meant to be understood, and that's why we have the Holy Spirit. May we all understand the value and the importance that we have in this church family. Today is Father's Day. And while our study today pertains to the church, I encourage you to walk back through this chapter. Consider all 13 of these points and ask, do any of these truths apply to the family as well? Would this have any impact on how I view my wife or my husband or my children? Would this impact how I view my mom or my dad? As you'll see, these truths are overwhelmingly wonderful in the home. It's why I delight to bring these to us and to study this chapter together on Father's Day. This is unity. This is the oneness that we all long for, not only in the church, but in our homes. God's ways and God's thoughts are so good. Chapter 12 ends with this phrase, and I show you a still more excellent way. This chapter, chapter 12, is a doing chapter, but as we're going to see next week, doing the right thing is not enough. Actions are always subservient to attitudes of the heart. I urge you to do everything you can to join us next week as we look at what many consider to be the greatest writings Paul ever penned. If the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength and mind, 
and to love our neighbors like ourselves, then 1 Corinthians 13 is certainly one of the commanding pillars of truth in the Scriptures, the chapter on Christian love. Pray for me as I study this chapter. I urge you to read it and meditate and pray over it this week. We are nearing the end of this book, and it is very clear that the Holy Spirit through the pen of Paul has used the prior 12 chapters to bring us to chapter 13, 14, and 15. The importance of love and the importance of keeping an eye on the resurrection power of Christ, the return of Christ. I look forward to being in these chapters with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the fact that you not only call us to holiness, but you equip us to holiness. Your Son, through his sacrifice, has done in us what we could never do for ourselves. You have removed guilt. You have forgiven us of sin. You have adopted us into the family of God. And you have sent the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, to give us the ability to do what is right. Lord, help us to understand the difference between working at righteousness in our own strength and working at righteousness, righteousness through the strength of the Holy Spirit. Surely that comes through our adherence and our reflection in the Word of God. As we've seen today, you have inspired us through your word. You have strengthened us in a supernatural way through your word, through your spirit. May that continue to be the case. Lord, prepare our hearts for the chapter on love. Prepare our eyes to look forward to the second coming of Christ. We love you and we love your word. As we come to close this service again, Lord, we give thanks for our dads. We give thanks for your sovereignty in our families and placing us where we are. We thank you, Lord, for the power that we receive through your Holy Spirit. Surely if there was no suffering, if there was no challenge, no trial, why would we even need the power of the Holy Spirit? But you give it to us in a good way and for a good purpose. Thank you for that. Thank you for our fathers. But thank you for being our Heavenly Father. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.